Hello, friends, and welcome to The Five By, your quattro weekly source for brevity-bound board game reviews. In this episode, Rel's going to build an animal sanctuary for points in Namalia. Jose is going to be out of this world and competing for corporate control over the four moons of Jupiter in the Galileo Project. John is going to be wicking out with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and if he gets around to it, he'll be completing the Requiem in Lacrimosa. Managing and investing in companies in the 1870s Chicago was going to be Justin's task, like you do. Lastly, I, Aaron, will partake in something I'm not particularly good at and honestly try to avoid in real life, gardening. But I'll give you my take on it in reference to the board game Gartenbau. This episode was also edited by Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Anywho, let's go. Chicago, 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 yeah. Man, I love Chicago. I mean, I love games too, but Chicago is where it's at. I'm enamored with a game called City of the Big Shoulders because it's really good and it combines a lot of the mechanics I love in a game. And because it's about starting a new business in the late 1800s in, you guessed it, Chicago. Sometimes referred to by its name from other regional print runs, Chicago 1875, City of the Big Shoulders is an economic market manipulation worker placement Euro game for two to four players that shares some adjacency to 18xx games. The title is based on the 1914 poem Chicago by American poet Carl Sandburg, the one that describes Chicago as, amongst other things, stormy, husky, and brawling. City of the Big Shoulders might be my favorite game. I don't know if it has the best design or the best artwork or even the best components, but the combination of its mechanisms makes it my favorite game of them all. You've got a nice twist on the 18xx formula by featuring stock rounds where players serve as investors who start various real-world corporations like Oscar Mayer, Schwinn, and Quaker Oats. One of my favorites is the meat producer Swift & Company in part because I still go to the steakhouse that bears the Swift company name, now known as Swift & Sons. By investing in both your own and other player corporations, you'll manage a portfolio of shares in those companies and watch them operate in the hopes of making you a wealthy stockholder. City of the Big Shoulders features paper money, but I'd never know it because across all of my plays, I've only ever used poker chips for money. And everyone loves poker chips. After stock rounds, you'll get an action phase. Here, City of the Big Shoulders pivots from a market manipulation game into a full-blown euro. That's because players will use their partners, really just meeples in their player color, to take actions on the main board. In classic worker placement format, a player who covers an action with their partner blocks it from other players in most cases. It's these actions that give City of the Big Shoulders so much juice. Like an 18xx game, your company's stock price is important, but it's not the only thing you'll be tracking. You also have to keep your company's appeal high. That's a form of tracking the real-world popularity of the organizations that you run. Your companies will need goods to operate later, so some of the actions become chances to buy discounted goods or do other services as well. Staff, you betcha. Some of the action spaces allow for a player to hire a manager or salespeople, making operations smooth, or your goods more attractive. Automation? Your plants will need workers to operate, but as play rolls forward through time, you can replace those workers with boring black octagonal pieces that take the place of those hourly staff members. 
I love the worker placement phase in City of the Big Shoulders more than maybe any other game I own. And that's only a third of what happens in each round. The last part of a round is the operating phase. Here, in appeal order, companies operate on a small mat that features one to three factories which activate from left to right. The mat calls for a certain number and color of goods that can be bought from a central market. Once those goods are bought, they are fed into your factory engine and produce whatever your company makes. Hogs, clothes, watches, bikes, etc. Goods sell for a predetermined price, and these sales pay dividends to stockholders and boost the company's stock price. Five rounds make up the entire game, which could take two to four hours, depending on the experience level of other players. City of the Big Shoulders is a blast for a lover of economic games combined with tense worker placement scenarios. The board is bland, but to me it also feels somewhat elegant in nature. It's a tough game to teach, but the iconography all makes sense and the player aid is so, so good. At four players, you get a very rich experience broken only by the constant sound of people stacking and restacking their poker chips. It's not perfect. Heck, it's not even available right now. Although Pegasus Spiel is picking up the rights to produce a reprint of the game later this year. The game does not shine as brightly at three players, and to me it's frankly unplayable at two players. More players means more drama in the stock market, and drama is good. I love City of the Big Shoulders because it's always such a different experience. I love the mathing of selling goods for the right prices, and I love how new action spaces are added to the main board during the phase in between stock and action phases. City of the Big Shoulders is not a looker, but it is a winner. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. From the sub-zero chills of the Arctic to the scorching sun on the savannah, you and your opponents are creating animal reserves hoping all creatures can live in harmony. Whose reserve will be the best at meeting the needs of all of their animals? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is Namalia, a game by William Levine with art by Pauline Dietrez. Namalia was published in 2023 by Lucky Duck Games, who sent me a review copy. In Namalia, two to four players build their animal reserves through card drafting and tableau building. Each round you'll have three cards and choose one to add to your reserve. Each card depicts four different types of terrain and four different types of animals. When adding a card to your reserve, you must cover at least one other terrain or animal space. After placing the card, you pass your remaining cards to your opponent and repeat this until you've added three cards to your reserve. Next, everyone will score the reserves based on the current scoring conditions, then draw three cards and begin a new round. After five rounds, the player with the most points wins. I got a quick two-minute preview of Namalia at PAX Unplugged, and I was immediately impressed. Namalia was a small box game that played far bigger than its actual physical size. During that quick demo, comparisons to other games filled my head. The 6x6 grid building reminded me of King Domino. Covering cards in your tableau, but not tucking them underneath other cards was like Sparlopolis, and the variable scoring rounds were very cartographers-like. I just knew Namalia would be a hit, and I eagerly awaited my review copy. Once it arrived, I tore it open, 
and read the rules and played a game with Michelle. My instincts were right. We loved it. I've played several games at all player counts and it holds up well. Nomalia is one of those filler games with some meat on its bones. It plays breezily, but it's definitely not lightweight in depth or strategy. At its heart, Nomalia is a spatial puzzle. While it's not too difficult to figure out where to place your terrain and animals to score those victory points, it can be tough to do so within the parameters of the game's placement rules. First, you must always cover at least one square on a card. You can even cover an entire card if you want, but you can never just place a card side by side with another one. Overlapping is a must, even if you don't want to. Second, you're limited to a 6x6 grid. Not a 6x6 grid of cards, but a 6x6 grid of the squares on those cards. Things always seem to get crowded quickly, and this doesn't let up throughout the game. Along with the placement puzzle comes an Amalia scoring system, which is a clever nod to cartographers. There are five scoring objective cards chosen at the start of each game, then each of these will be scored at various points in the game. In the first three rounds, you'll score two objectives, and then in the final two rounds, you'll score three of the objectives. Depending on what terrain animal cards you've drafted, you can either work on the current scoring objective, or you can plan for a future one. What I appreciate here is that you can work on the current round scoring and then find yourself at odds with the other objective for that round. You're not just adding cards to your reserve, counting up the points as you go along. You're actively planning what to do in future rounds since your choices will affect your ability to score later in the game. It's this neat balancing act that I really enjoy in Amalia. For example, you're scoring the savannah terrain in this round, so you're lining up all that desert next to each other. But the round might also score giraffes in a way that the more giraffes you have, the fewer points you score. So are you going to lose points for giraffes in order to score your savannah terrain? Or do you just score fewer or even zero points for the giraffes while hoping to make it up with another animal during the next round? These simple yet sometimes agonizing decisions make Namalia such a delightful 20-minute game. I absolutely love the straightforward gameplay. Draft a card, place it in your reserve, and then pass your cards. Repeat until three cards have been placed, then score. Do this five times, and the game is over. Namalia reminds me that more games need to be as intuitive and streamlined. For new gamers and casual gamers, this is one of the better options for an introduction to modern board games. The drafting mechanism is simple to explain, and the starting scoring objectives are easy to understand, yet offer a good challenge. Once you start playing with the more complex objectives, the full experience of Namalia opens up. The scoring ranges from a simple count of animals, such as two points per gorilla adjacent to a lake, to a more complicated terrain objective that scores three points per row that contains all four terrain types. Nomalia stays fresh and replayable thanks to the 11 double-sided objective cards that are combined to score in lots of different ways. With its straightforward yet puzzly gameplay, Nomalia is a winner and worthy of being added to your collection of games to travel with. Thanks to Lucky Duck Games for the copy of Nomalia. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Stardate. Random numbers here. Humanity is no longer interested in exploring space, but now we're looking to settle on lands beyond our current grasp. Earth has been overpopulated for some time, and Mars is now sustaining human life, but we need more. P.S. Today we're going to have pizza in the mess hall. Hey everyone. Today we're going to be taking a look at Galileo Project. It's a combo-heavy engine-building game for two to four industrious players 
designed by Adrian Hessling, and published by Sorry We Are French. That's okay. In Galileo Project, you play a poor boy from a poor fa- No, no, wait, no, no, that won't go. In Galileo Project, it's actually a sequel to the board game Ganymede, which came out a couple years ago. In this game, you continue to play as a mega corporation that's looking to settle one of the four satellites of Jupiter in order to make the most profits and ultimately score the most... What is it? What is it? It's our favorite. Score the most of victory points. After a fast and easy main board setup, players each collect a board that has the four satellites of Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And then players are going to be drafting robot parts, which also dictate your starting resources. And then you're off to the races. Your turns are pretty straightforward at first. At the start of your turn, you have the option to switch influence levels between Earth and Mars. I'll go into that in a little bit. And then you can perform one of three actions. You can hire a character, which could be a scientist or a politician. They usually give you some sort of bonus that you can acquire or a new action. You can acquire a robot to send to one of the four satellites so you can develop that planet. Or you can acquire technologies, which change the rules for you and give you some advantages. At the end of your turn, you're going to check to see if you meet any of the randomized goals, and you can claim one of them to score you some of those juicy victory points for the end of the game. The game is going to end when one player either has 10 robots or the character deck depletes. Now, I know that this makes the game sound very simple. Maybe too simple. But now we have to talk about everything else. So in this game, there are three different types of currency. You have influence, which is used to gain characters and robots, but there's two different types of influence. There's influence for Earth and Mars. They're separate because both of these planets have very different interests, and you can only focus on influence from one planet or the other, so you're constantly switching between the two. Mega credits are currency that are used to develop technologies, pay for your characters at the end of the game, and they also allow you to switch between the two influences that I mentioned before. Energy is the final currency which is used to develop technologies as well, but it's also used to lower those requirements for the endgame goal tiles, making them just a little bit easier for you to grasp. The last thing you have to manage is actually your player board. The player board that shows the four satellites of Jupiter, and the level of development that your company has put on this planet. So, the most obvious reason why you're developing these planets is to score you points. But, each planet makes one of the options on your turn better as you develop that planet. So, as you play the game, those three options that you had at the beginning, they start becoming more and more lucrative. So, for example, do you like robots? Robots are pretty cool, right? You want to make them cheaper for you to get? Okay, cool. Let's visit beautiful Io. Where, as long as you develop that planet, robots become cheaper and cheaper for you to get, almost becoming free by the end of the game. Do you want to make those characters that you can hire do more for you? Well, let's go to Ganymede, and let's make those characters do more for you. Between the abilities that the cards give you, the robots that you get, and the actions becoming better and better as you play the game, those initially straightforward options start to have a lot more depth and complexity. I really enjoyed the journey this game takes you through. Turns initially start really straightforward and easy, but as you develop and collect goodies, your engine builds and combo starts to pop off. And that happens at such a nice pace that you never feel like the game gets too unwieldy, and you're just powered just enough to want you to push you forward a little bit more when you compare yourself to everyone else. And it all just trickles it down to you so that by the end of the game, 
you're doing some wild stuff. I also want to make sure I give credit to David Sitbon's incredible art. Honestly, the first reason why I stopped and looked at this game was the box art. I couldn't stop staring at it, and it made me just want to figure out what this game was. And as soon as you start putting out this board game, you start seeing those colors and his artwork just pop off the table. I never realized space had so much color. And while we're on the topic, let's look at the production values that, sorry we are French, it's okay, has put out. These cards feel nice and sturdy, the tokens have a nice chunk to them, making them very satisfying. My favorite component is actually the poker chips that they include for mega credits. They stand out against all the other tokens and they just feel nice and weighty in your hand. I've played a couple of Sorry We Are French games, and this may be a hint about some future games I'm going to review. Hmm? Wink, wink, wink. Uh, but they do a great job with the physical components of their games. and All of their games feel satisfying just to physically engage with. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, Self, he mentioned that this game is a sequel to Ganymede. And how does that compare? Well, sorry, I, I can't really answer that question. I've actually never had a chance to play Ganymede. I'm sure it's a fine game. But that never felt like a negative thing. I didn't feel like I was losing anything by not having played Ganymede to begin with. This game gets high praise for me and a definite recommendation. If you're into engine building games with fantastic art, high replayability, and a fairly quick playtime, you need to check this game out. My name is Jose, and you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth and on Twitter at SirBearsworth1. Come on and say hi. Let me know what you've been playing. Upon his death at age 34, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart left an unfinished piece called Requiem. Mozart's widow, Constanza, reached out to his pupils to help complete his final work. Hello, I'm John Gonzalez. Black Ramosa is a board game from publisher De Beer Games. It was designed by Gerard Asensi and Ferran Renalias. It features art by Jared Blando and Enrique Corminas. The game takes on as its theme Constanza's efforts to chronicle Mozart's life through the eyes of his patrons, as well as the task of funding and producing his final work. The game has players take on the roles of Mozart's patrons as they recall their accounts of their travels with Mozart. When I first read the description for Lacrimosa, I was super interested in the game's theme. I was also very curious as to how it actually worked as a board game, and which game mechanisms it would employ. Okay, so thematically you are one of Mozart's patrons, and Constanza, his widow, has asked you to recount your stories and anecdotes of your time with Mozart. Uh, in the game, you are working in two timelines, the past, in which you commission work for Mozart and travel with him from court to court, and in the present, well, you know, the 1700s, as you fund the completion of Mozart's final work, The Requiem. It's a really great theme and setting, maybe a little clunky with the whole timelines thing, but you probably want to know how it plays. Lacrimosa is a mid-weight euro for up to four players. According to the box, it plays in about 90 minutes. In my experience, it lands at about 90 to 120 minutes. So let's get to it. Every player starts off with a deck of nine cards, a personal player board, and tokens to track various resources. Cards are divided into two halves. Actions are depicted on the top and resources or victory points at the bottom. On your turn, you choose two cards from your hand of four cards. One will be placed into the top part of your personal player board in a slot that obscures the bottom half of the card. The other card you've chosen will go into a similar slot at the bottom, obscuring the top half. The game calls these top and bottom slots as experiences and memory slots, respectively. The top card will be the action you take, and the bottom card will give you the listed resources at the end of the round. Each player will carry this out four times during a round, and there are five rounds in the game. 
There's a lot to cover in this game, and I won't be able to give a full rules breakdown. There's plenty of uh, learn-to-play videos available out there anyway. I would like to focus, however, on the deck-building aspect of this game. One of the five actions that you can take during your turn is called Documenting Memories. Essentially, you are adding a card from the available offer of cards to your deck, paying any associated costs, of course. It's an action we've seen countless of times in many games, but in Lacrimosa, you aren't just adding a card to your deck, you're replacing a card. You're using your story card, that's the card that you place at the top of your board, to replace the card that you place at the bottom of your board, the one that's going to gain you some resources at the end of the round. And that card will eventually be shuffled back into your hand. So while this may be called deck building, your deck will always be composed of nine cards. Maybe we could call it deck sculpting, or better yet, deck composing, deck composition? Anyhow, when adding cards to their deck, players need to consider which actions they will lose and what actions they are adding to their deck. You can create a deck that focuses on one or more of the five actions. In later rounds, some of the cards have multiple actions on them. You can perform two actions during a turn. I really enjoy this aspect of the game as it gives you the opportunity to create a purposeful and focused deck. But deck composition is only one aspect of the game. The other four actions in the game have you commissioning an opus, performing or selling music, traveling, and helping to complete the Requiem. These actions translate to buying cards that represent Mozart's works, using the cards to gain victory points and resources, moving around the map on the board, and adding influence for area majority. All of this takes place on a generously sized board that is beautifully illustrated and designed. In fact, the whole production is stunning. From the double-layered player boards to the box art, Lacrimosa is easily one of the best-looking games of 2022. As a game, Lacrimosa is a multi-layered and thoughtful one that is not overly complex. I wish I had more than five minutes to dive into a breakdown of the other actions, but there's just no way to do it and give it the justice it deserves. And that's a shame because I really do believe that the beauty of this game, the art of its design, is how all these mechanisms and actions exist in the game with a sort of musical harmony. Now, I'm not an expert on classical music, but I do enjoy the occasional listen, and Lacrimosa plays like a good piece of music one that you can listen to and marvel at how it all works together in harmony, or appreciate the melodies that weave through the composition. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. You can find me on social media as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Aaron from GameWithDeuce.com, here for the 5 by, and on this episode, I'm going to be talking about a gardening game where players are going to be attempting to become a master gardener, but nothing happens overnight going from a seedling to a plant to a flower. And that game is Gartenbau. Gartenbau was designed by David Abelson and Alex Johns with art from Matt Paquette and company and Todd Sanders. Gartenbau was also published by 25th Century Games, who was also kind enough to send me a copy of the game. Gartenbau is a two to four player game. Gartenbau comes with a double-sided two-piece market board and that board has a rather large sunflower or maybe a blackhead susan on it that is essentially a rondelle that players are going to be moving around to get the resources to hopefully and ultimately get the flowers that they are trying to grow each player would take one of the four wheelbarrow shaped player markers to make their movements on the rondelle it's also two resource wheelbarrows that players can easily fairly easily put together made out of cardboard that are going to be the receptacles for the sun tokens, and the water tokens. 
There are also six starter seedling tiles. Each player would choose one of those tiles as sort of like the base in order to allow everything to grow off of it. There are 72 seedling tiles that will be divided up and placed actually onto the petals on the aforementioned market board. There's going to be 48 plant tiles in a separate marketplace at the top or bottom, depending on where you're sitting, of the market board. That player is going to be able to spend sun and water tokens to buy plants to put onto matching seedlings. And then lastly, but also most importantly, are the actual flower tiles themselves. That player is going to be putting on top of matching and the required plant tiles in order to score the most points. At the beginning of the game, every player would start off with two water tokens and two sunlight tokens. One square seedling starter tile. Each player would also get one flower pot token and one watering can token. The flower pot token allows you to take the seedling tile from any place on the rondelle without having to spend extra resources to move to it if it's not the one that's closest to you that you would move to going clockwise. The watering can allows you to move your seedling tiles around or switch the position of two of them once per game. Once those are used or out of the game, if they go unused by any player, they're both worth two points at the end of the game. I'm not really sure why I keep mentioning these last, but then each player would get a stack of five different plant tiles that they're basically trying to grow by the end of the game if they want to compete in points. And who does want to compete in points? So in terms of the actual gameplay, players have a couple of options. They can get into the seedling market, meaning they would take their wheelbarrow on the rondelle and move to the closest unoccupied stack of seedling tiles and take one of those tiles. That rectangular seedling tile could then be placed anywhere adjacent to that player's starting seedling tile or any other previously placed seedling tile. On the very same petals that the seedling tiles are on on the rondelle, there's also small iconography indicating resources, more specifically water and sunlight tokens. Maybe three of one of them, two of each of them, one of each. Any one of those combinations of resources can be obtained in lieu of taking the seedling tile. If you wish to move to a petal that has a seedling tile that you want more than the one that's closest to you, you can always skip one, but you have to leave a resource on any of the petals that you skip. The last two options that players have for their turn involve taking your wheelbarrow and placing it onto the yellow or orange circles in between all the petals that have these stacks of seedling tiles. And in that way, you can access the plant marketplace. The plant marketplace consists of six separate stacks of plants that can be purchased using water or sunlight tokens that are ultimately going to be placed on top of matching seedlings. So you have to go from seedlings to plants to hopefully flowers. But those are two different actions. So by landing on the circle, you can buy something from the plant marketplace that completes your turn. Also, by landing on the circle, you can also take the flower tiles you already have and put them on top of two different plant tiles that meet the requirements for that flower. Once you place a flower tile into your garden, you also get the benefit of gaining any combination of three water or sunlight tokens. The end game trigger is when four of those stacks of seedling tiles in the rondelle are emptied and everybody would get an even number of turns. So my thoughts. I like Garden Bow. It's a nice game. The components are very nice. It's a very pretty looking game. While I have certainly enjoyed my plays of the game, there have been times where I played and it has been a bit frustrating because if you are not getting the seedling tiles that you need, or if people have bought a lot of the plants in the plant marketplace that you need, 
you are kind of stuck. Can buy plants and just put them on matching seedlings in order to get some points, in order to get by, but I'm not really sure how that works in the long run. I don't know if you can really do that with enough plants to compensate for not getting the flowers, which are worth a lot more points. I could go for a lot of games where, hey, you either get the cards or you don't. It's all in all, I do enjoy Garden Bow. I would say if you really just dislike flowers and, and plants, maybe stay away. But if not, like a little tableau kind of building, a little bit of a spatial puzzle, trying to figure out how you can get the right seedlings to match up to get the plants on them, then to get the flowers on them. I recommend Garden Bow. It's pretty fun. Which, once again, was sent to me by 25th Century Games. Anyway, I'm Aaron from GameViews.com. This has been the 5 by. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to me. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed. You've been listening to The Five By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here or want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash five by games. Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.